I want to, as they're dismissing here, just want to welcome you to Allen Bible Church. Uh, My name is Buddy Liles. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you are um, new or with us, I just want to invite you to, there's a simple guest connect card in the seat back in front of you. Um, If you'd fill that out and drop it in the little metal box on your way out, uh, we'd appreciate that. That would help us in our desire to to welcome you as well as possible. Uh, Also, that is where you can give. If you've come prepared to give as part of your worship today, uh, you can also do that online. You can text to give. Um, In fact, can you throw that slide up there for them, Connor? And then um, we, we just say that to one another, to remind one another to give as part of our worship. The last thing I want to let you know, um, if you're newer with us or if you're with us, but um, you need a little bit of a reminder, each month this year, um, and we're not saying this is what we're going to do every year, but it's possible, um, we don't want to, our mission as Allen Bible Church is not to just think about Christ's great commandment, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, or uh, Christ's great commission, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Those are our marching orders. We don't want to just think about that, study that. We want to, our mission is to live that out, to embody it. And so you throw up the slide there of uh, practicing the way, um, Connor. We have this month our practice uh, to practice the way of Jesus and to live out following him um, is fasting. Can you find that one there? There you go. So fasting, uh, biblically, and only accounts of uh, fasting biblically are food. And so we encouraged a few weeks ago, if that's something that you'd be uh, inclined to do, we invited everyone to take a little bit of Good Friday and maybe miss a meal or two and replace that meal with the reminder that we don't live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And so don't just not eat, but use that time you might eat to feast on God's word. And, um, but we said also that fasting really is, is a great time to hit reset with the Lord. Perhaps when uh, we felt those hunger pangs, that little bit of unnerving, a little bit of hangry hits you, it reminds us that there are deeper hungers that God has put in us for himself. And so we said you can also do that in other ways. You can fast from certain activities, And so we just thought um, just for this Thursday, Friday, and I'm going to explain it very quickly, um, to invite you, all of you who'd who'd like to participate, um, to digitally fast. And so here's three examples. We're going to put this out in an email as well, but three possible ways. When I say Thursday through Friday, uh, it could be partial. You could say, hey, I'm going to take half of one of those two days, and I'm just going to turn the phone off or turn off social media for uh, that time. Again, you're not checking in with us. We don't know if you're doing this or not, but the invitation would be to consider it. Or you may say, I'm gonna do Friday morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn my notifications off. I'm actually gonna turn my phone off. <gasps> um, or you might do uh, just social media. You might keep the phone on. You gotta use it for work. You gotta use your laptop for work. This is not like get fired. This is... Is there some way in which we can give our attention to God uh, in setting aside this for a time? And for those who'd be brave enough, um, Thursday noon to Friday noon is a full day. Turn it off, put it in a drawer, and see if you survive. Um, sorry, that's just, <clears throat> I think we can make it. Um, but I want you to see those are a couple options. It could be, honestly, I'm going to give the first hour of my day, and that's all, that's, that's all you do, and that's great. The point would be, Lord, you have my attention, um, and to seek him and fostering that relationship. So that's just the quick announcements for you. Uh, what we're going to do right now is dismiss our K-4th through graders through the double doors. And I'm actually going to have you just greet um, someone around you really quickly. And Lindsay, I'm going to invite you up. And so, kids, you are dismissed. Did they already leave? Hey, they're on top of it. They're ahead of me. Uh, if, you, if you would, then... You don't even have to greet one another. Stand. And if you want to open to Luke chapter 14, Lindsay uh, Glover is going to be our reader in just a moment. But to give attention to God's word, stand and open to Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. Our scripture reading today is Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first set down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit against him with 20,000, will not sit down first, sorry, and deliberate whether he is able to with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lindsay. You guys may be seated. So we entitled today's message, um, Costly and salty, because Jesus gives us the cost of discipleship very clearly. And he ends the sermon with um, what Connor just had up there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you think about it, um, this was less uh, him telling a parable and more him just saying, hey, here's the call to, if you want to be my follower, and yet he ends it like he often does a parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. And when you hear that at the end of a parable, what Jesus is saying is, tune in to my kingdom. I'm telling you something about God's kingdom that you may not know yet, but it is an essential quality or an essential characteristic of those who are part of my kingdom. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him attend to what I've said and respond. And this passage is um, a, a, a thick, this is, uh, if you will, kind of a, a, a ribeye, a fillet of what does it look like to be his Disciple. This, in fact, for us as a church, even in our founding um, moments, uh, kind of what are we going to be about as a church and what are we going to pursue? And I said it earlier, our mission is not to think about uh, loving God, loving our neighbor and making disciples, but to live that out. And if we're going to live that out, we have to have some idea of what does a disciple mean? How will I know if I'm making one? How will I know if I am? And so what we began to do even before we existed as a church was look at well, what does Jesus say a disciple is? Because there's lots of books you could read on it, but what is he, when he uses the word disciple, which is in this passage, mathetes, it simply means a learner or a follower, one who follows a rabbi, one who's trying to take it in and process and then begin to embody it, that themselves. But that's what it means, is, is learner. But this passage has three of the instances, and I believe there's only about 11, and then a couple of them are sort of repeat, just slightly different wording in the different gospels, where Jesus uses the word disciple. And we thought, we're not real brilliant people, but if we're gonna try to be faithful people, maybe we should pay attention when Jesus uses the word, and when he uses the concept, and he says, here's what it is, and here's what it is not, okay? So I want you to hear that. I want that to even spark in you. I'm not going to tell you the other references. Maybe you'll just go look that up this week. Disciple, where does Jesus use it? Wait, you can look in a concordance. You can look up online. Where does Jesus use the word disciple? And boom. And you could begin to unpack even other places where Jesus says, here's what it looks like. Here's what, when you can sniff it out in a person or, or in yourself. And here's where it's, it's not clicking. And that's particularly what he's gonna uh, put before us today. You wanna be my disciple, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, 
When I say we're not, you know, brilliant people, I'm going to particularly say Buddy's not brilliant. So I'm going to give you very plainly this passage. Go to does not, cannot be. I want you to see it's three times in this passage what Lindsay read. The phrase does not and then cannot be. He who does not hate his own father and mother, and you just keep listening to our family relations, even yourself, cannot be my disciple. He who does not carry his own cross cannot be my disciple. He, so no one who does not give up all his own possessions cannot be my disciple. In one sense, giving you that framework, you don't need much from me other than we probably should pay attention. Let him who has ears to hear, let him who has eyes to see, look and see and ask God for perception and understanding. When Jesus gets really clear and he says, if you do not hate, if you do not carry your own cross, if you do not give up all your own possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Let me say it with a different word. It's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. Now, I've said this uh, in previous weeks. Um, we did this as a men's series one time. Uh, a few of these, uh, we called it, um, but we're going to do it in here at some point. We're kind of doing it as we go through Luke a little bit, but it's things Jesus says that we don't really believe. Luke 12, we went through it um, when he says, life does not um, consist of the abundant, with the abundance of possessions. Basically, we think if I've, if I've got everything in order, I've got these possessions, if I've got the account padded, if I've got these material goods, and so therefore I'm secure, and maybe I'm a little bit significant with others, and now I'm really in on life, and he says, that's not what life consists of. We don't believe that. Uh, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. He's kind of hitting on that same thing here, but what is he saying? It's impossible. You cannot serve God and also mammon, and that's particularly, some of your translations might say money, but it's really the stuff that money gives you. That life or the God life. He's saying, we, it is impossible. You cannot serve. This passage gives us three. And I would say part of why we find life um, difficult, where we get tied in knots, where we perhaps find the Christian life boring, is because we don't see that there's any way, if I give up these things and go for you, that's gonna be boring. So what I'll try to do is hedge a little bit and I'll, I'll dabble over here and I'll give you, I'll throw you a bone, Jesus. And he says, cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, the other thing, if you'll notice in verse 25, look there, the audience has changed from last week. Last week, he was at a, a late afternoon meal at one of the prominent Pharisees' houses. And that's when he said, hey, you guys all posture and box out to try to get the best seats. And then you get ridiculed when the host says, well, I'm sorry, a more important man came. You got to go take the last seat. He's like, no, go and take the last seat. Or when you're going to host something, invite the lame, the blind, those who can't pay you back. And you're basically giving away, sacrificing, probably sacrificing reputation. You're not going to get any invites to the cool kids parties. And that was the situation. And boy, he ratcheted up the intensity with the religious leaders who were already rejecting him. When he, he says, in fact, I'm gonna tell you this story. This one invited some folks. He sent out to save the date. They all said, well, yeah, we'll be there. Then when the meal came, he says, all right, the meal's ready. He sent his servants, the meal's ready. And they all said, ah, I got some land. I got some oxen. I'm, I'm newly married. And they excused themselves from it. And so he tells, he says, well, then go out to the streets and invite the blind, the lame, those who can't repay us. And they said, we've done that and there's still room. And he says, then go out to the highways and the hedges. And what he was really saying is these are the Jewish leaders who were already rejecting him and the nation through them would reject Jesus ultimately seen on the cross. But because of that, he says, the highways and the hedges represent those who are not Jewish. I'm gonna go to others. Now it was always God's intention, but you have, you have sped that up and the kingdom I offer I'm offering, it's here, it's among you, but it's also gonna be delayed in its full consummation because now God's inviting the highways and the hedges. That's most of us in here. Most of us don't have Jewish background. If you do, you have a, a rich richness we don't have necessarily of just experience, but he's saying that's where it goes. Now I'm telling you all that because this has moved to the crowds. They're growing. 
I want us to take note of this. Jesus, even his disciples would be this way. Jesus is not interested in getting crowds. Every time he does, he thins them. We think, well, a church is really banging if, the, if, if it's however many, you know, there's probably some number in our heads. This is where it is. Or a ministry is of a certain place, you know, significance-wise, prominence-wise. So my little, you know, trying to minister to my couple of coworkers that nobody ever sees just isn't important. And, and Jesus is saying, let me tell you, I'm not interested in the crowds. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he records another time where he draws a line in the sand. He's like basically some, and they're like, these are really hard sayings. And people start leaving. And he turns to his boys, Peter and James and John and the boys, and says, well, are you two going to leave? And Peter says, we're not going to leave. To hell can we go for the words of life? That's what this passage is about. It's Jesus drawing a line in the sand and saying, you're going to be my committed disciple? Yeah, you, uh, and one other thing I'd say, these are not entrance requirements. We don't enter into relationship with Jesus by doing all these things, okay? We enter because he has come to us and by his grace, given us the faith to trust him so that we belong to him. And now he's saying, those who would want to come to me and belong, know that I'm, I'm here for every, everyone who would believe in me, but now believing in me to, to be my fully devoted follower and not a dabbler, here's some things. If you do these, if you don't do these, do, does not do these, then you cannot be. Okay? That's as clear as I can try to be because it's clear on the page. But like we've said often here, what's plain on the page is often painful in the decisions and the life orientation for us, myself included, maybe myself especially. And so let's look at these just a moment. The, the next slide here, I want you to take note of, again, Buddy's non-brilliance. He says, you cannot be my disciple. You throw that one up there, Connor? My disciple. Uh, the thing I want to say there <clears throat> is we're all disciple, being discipled by someone or something. Uh, some of us are discipled by whichever flavor of cable news we read, whichever um, Twitter folks we follow. We, we are being discipled. And by disciple, we get our sense of where life really is, what life's really about, and our orientation for the direction we will walk and we will, decisions we will make, okay? So Jesus is saying, you want to be my disciple? You want to align with me? You want to follow me and represent me? If we're seeking to live as his ambassadors where he's located us and the relationships he's put us in, he's saying, my disciple, it's going to be, to be my disciple, it's going to be costly. There's some must-bes that he goes through because ultimately you and I are meant to be salty. Those are the last two verses. Salt is good, but if it loses its taste, it kind of is useless, even for the secondary things like fertilizer. Okay? Again, very plain things, but the question that I want through my mind and yours is, where am I in these three that he's going to, these must be he's going to give us, where am I on that spectrum of growth? Am I growing? Am I, you know, recessing? Am I progressing? Where am I? Particularly not in my gut feel, where am I in terms of what Jesus is very clear about? So that first must be um, is that I'm turning what he says don't do or, you know, doesn't do and cannot be. I'm turning into must be's. So what he's calling us to are these three musts. The first one is unrivaled. Jesus is saying my relationship, your relationship with me should be unrivaled by any other relationship in your life. The second, it should be unquestionable to anyone that you identify with me no matter the cost. And then third, undistracted. I could have used lots of different words, but basically what has most pull in your life is not the things that you own or possess. They're not what holds sway over you. They're not what direct your life, your decisions, but it is to be my ownership. You own my ownership of you, and you're the steward of the things I have given you. So let's look at that first one, Connor, if you'll throw that up there. Unrivaled, back in verse 26 that Lindsay read for us. He's saying, what must be 
if you're going to be my fully devoted follower, is that you must be in an unrivaled relationship with me, that I am the supreme, incomparable love relationship of your life. Verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The first does not is does not hate. The cannot is cannot be my disciple. Can, um, does not hate his own father and mother. Now that should cause you like, wait a second. Because I know there's some others that like honor your father and mother. Um, I, I know that we are to love our neighbor. We're even to love our enemies. So is Jesus contradicting himself? What is going on? I know some of us in here, maybe some of you who are, are younger are like, well, good, Jesus gave me permission to hate my brother because he gets on my last nerve. I, maybe that's where you are. This is not a verse for that. Because I want to explain, this is Jewish idiom. They would have understood it. He's not saying hate, like spew your venom and, and dismiss and, and renounce your entire family. And, because he's also saying then hate yourself. Elsewhere he says, love your neighbor as the Bible already knows you love yourself. So he's not saying that. It's a term of comparison. That's why I say unrivaled or incomparable. Our relationship with him should stand well above. It should be pronounced that he is the supreme love relationship of my life and yours. Uh, I said it's a Jewish idiom. They would use these terms not like we do. Um, because what he's ultimately talking about here is when he says love and hate, He's not talking about your affections. He's talking about your loyalty and decisions, okay? <clears throat> in Scripture elsewhere, he uses love and hate. <clears throat> when Jacob, uh, who got tricked, he wanted Rachel as his wife, and he got Leah, and then he got both. We're not going to go down that road, but there he was with two of them. And we know that, <clears throat> you know, or it says that Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah, he didn't hate Leah like we use the word. It, it simply means that, again, the key is Jesus is not talking about affections, but decisions, and yet affections will follow decisions. And so it's a choice, it's a prioritizing uh, of, for him, uh, Rachel uh, over, over Leah. There's also elsewhere where, where God um, you know, will, will choose one over the other, and it's not that he hates the one, it's I've decided by my will that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, through this one, be a blessing to others, okay? So that's what he's talking about in comparison. In fact, those of us who would um, take him seriously on this and invest in him being the supreme love relationship in our lives will become those who, because he now holds sway over us and orients us, now we can learn to, as a husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or as a wife, respond in, in, in love to your husband's leadership or to love your neighbor. That love for him and his love for us experienced will get expressed beautifully or more beautifully and more abundantly the more we are um, experiencing again and again his love for, for us and knowing, um, knowing him for who he truly is and fostering that relationship. We must prioritize our love relationship with Jesus Christ above all others. No rivals, no divided loyalty. Um, I don't think any translations that y'all have out there would say this, but um, we don't use this phrase as much um, in vows or charges at weddings, but you'll probably, most of you remember forsaking all others. You know, in sickness and in health, that's a test of your relationship. Is it gonna, is it gonna remain a priority? Um, rich or poor? Well, I liked you, but now that the account's dipped here, it's a little up in air. You know, forsaking all others, though, that expression that, you know, will you, forsaking all others, commit yourself to this person now? Um, that used to be part of not only wedding vows, but it's why when I do premarital counseling um, with couples, I will clearly lay out um, that there's way more at stake than how you feel. And I'll let them know, if you want me to do your wedding, 
we're not going to have you uh, write your vows like we're the bachelor couple that's going to make it, and you're expressing this sunset today is just an, an extension of just how radiant I feel you are today. That is not a vow, and that will fade. Because some days you wake up in April, and it feels like December outside. I'm getting, they're not Jesus chills, these are just chill chills. But, but in premarital counseling, I will go through that to say, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you because sometimes your preferences are going to be ignored. Sometimes way, the way you'd like things to happen are not only going to be kind of resisted, they're going to they're be digging in on the other side. And so I try, to, I, I try to warn them. It's just the same like we do with people coming on staff here. I like try to tell you why you don't want to take this job. I try to say, here's why you don't want to go get married. Because you really want to know that you want to, and, that, and then you have to make a decision of the will. I will be loyal to you, richer or for poorer, forsaking all others. My relationship with you will be unrivaled in terms of marriage. Because love, ultimately, biblically, is not a ditch you fall into. It is a commitment of the will and to will the best for the other even if that means, and especially when that means, sacrificing your own interest and putting their interests above your own. So where we get, um, I mentioned earlier, we started as a church saying, well, what does it look like to be Jesus' disciple? And we said, of those 11 verses, a couple of them have overlap. And we said, really, there's about seven marks. This is not the Bible, but this is trying to, out of the Bible, what do we draw out? Jesus, And the first mark, if you put that up there, Connor, the first mark is life of worship. Life of worship, and this comes from this verse. And it, here it is. If I'm, mar if I'm growing as his disciple, and, and this would be marking my life, I've not arrived and now I'm there, I'm done, check that one off. This is a grid through which I see life and orient life, okay? Life of worship. What does that look like in your life and mine? Well, it's my joyous whole life response to God for who he is and what he has done, declares his supreme worth in my life above all other relationships. Now that's a lot, but look at it. My joyous whole life response, all of me. You have all of me. You have my bank account, my decisions about um, my, my, my life's work, um, my responses when I've been wronged. You have all of me. It's a whole life response. It's not my Sunday nods. It's my when no one else is looking display that you, you are my most valuable relationship. You're my supreme worth in life above all other relationships. Simply as you see that and you hear what Jesus says, just ask, Lord, where am I on that? Where am I in the growth spectrum where is it that I have grown cold in my love toward you? Where have I just kind of, man, life hurts and it's painful and I've just distanced from you. And where is it I'm tempted to replace you with something else that gets my attention and therefore my affections follow? Lord, where is that? He says, if, it's, if there's a rival, you're, you're edging into the impossibility part. You cannot be my fully devoted disciple while dabbling with other rivals in relationship. So that would be a good prayer. Another would be just asking the people who know you best, would they say Jesus is the who who matters most to you? Not the people who see you when you got on your best and you're smiling and how are you? Fine, fine. How are you? Fine. The people who know you best, would they say, yeah, they're not perfect, but when it boils down to it, Jesus is most important to them. Well, what Jesus is saying here is, I will not be an add-on to your life. I must be the supreme relationship, the unrivaled priority relationship in your life. Otherwise, you're dabbling. And he now moves to where that gets proven in our lives as his disciples. He's going to shoot us straight that discipleship is difficult and it's costly. And the spiritual life is not a casual undertaking. Being his disciple is not a middle-class hobby. 
and our aligning with him and allegiance to Jesus must be unquestionable. Look at verse 27. This is our second must be, unquestionable. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's the second one. Who does not carry his own cross cannot be my disciple. Uh, we already know um, this, that the cross, um, Jesus carried only partially, but in Rome, everyone knew what he was talking about. It was a gruesome, fearful thing. Um, sometime uh, a couple of decades before this, one um, Roman ruler crucified like 2,000 Jews on the same day and just put them all along the road. So instead of driving down the road and you see light posts and you know cell phone towers as you go, you're seeing crucified Jews. So the people listening to Jesus knew it very well. And what, what they would have the, the person doing who was gonna be crucified is to carry at least the horizontal beam on them and carry it on probably the long meandering way because what it was doing was one, sending fear into everybody. You wanna be this? You wanna end up here? Don't cross the Romans, okay? But it was also a way in which the public humiliation and the carrying it was actually identifying yourself as I am the one in the wrong here. I'm the criminal. I'm identifying as that. And then they get and they're crucified. Now, Jesus is, um, we hope, and we're right biblically to think, he's not saying everyone go be crucified. Everyone go die. Because once you do, then you're dead. Okay? Elsewhere in Luke, if you look back at Luke 9, around 27 to 30-ish range, Jesus says a very similar thing that we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. So it surely can't be <laughs> go die physically, but he is saying there should be a self-denial. There should be such an identif identification with me, the one who will be crucified. There's such an identification with me that it is unquestionable you belong to me, that you don't call the shots in your life, that you have submitted to me. Your allegiance is to me. Your aligning is with me, even if that means suffering. It's, uh, my friend Cole uses this expression. It's, it's learning as we mature, we're gonna run up against that impossibility. Is it, is it do I run my life or you? And he, but my friend Cole's expression is, own his ownership of you. We're like, we don't like that. Uh, nobody owns me. Well, you know, elsewhere, we, we do like the passage where it says, you know, that we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with our bodies, with our lives. Well, what he's saying is, you have been redeemed. There has been the price paid for you on the cross, so therefore you are his. I am his. And we will get about a, a life with greater sense of purpose, contentment, and freedom the more we will just submit to that, that we would own his ownership of us. The reason why I'm using identifying, same idea, no matter the cost, identifying is what carrying the cross was. I'm identifying myself as the one who's the criminal, the one worthy of death. And so to take up our crosses daily is to say, I am aligned and he has, uh, with Jesus and he has my allegiance. And he says, whoever does not carry his own cross or identify with me, he cannot be my disciple. He's making it clear that only cross bearers, and I would say daily cross bearers, can be his maturing, devoted disciples. So consider what cross-bearing cost. And that's where he gives two illustrations. Um, Lindsay read them. You can look at 28 through 32. There's somebody who wants to build a tower. And then there's a king who's got a slightly smaller army than another king who seems to be advancing. And so you've got building and battle. It's interesting that as Jesus is, is, is saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for fully devoted followers who can be part and useful to building my kingdom, the one that I'm gonna build. It's interesting that the people he uses are going about that, going about building and considering battle. But what he's saying there is it's going to cost. If you identify with me, you take up your cross, 
you're going to name the name of Jesus. It'll cost you in the family. That relationship's going to get tested. Some of you are going to have to identify with me despite being disowned by your family. Um, somebody we were, I was talking with this week, or a couple of somebody's actually, we don't face this as much, although it will grow here in the United States, but you go to another culture where family and heritage, I know you and I were talking about it, but, but um, where, where basically to trust Christ and to follow him is to be seen by your family doing this, turning your back on your family and walking away. And Jesus is saying, count that cost because there will be ridicule and it could even cost you your life. And so you need to consider the cost because what I'm looking for is those who identify with me no matter the cost. What was at stake with the builder is he sits down to calculate out the cost because what he doesn't want to do is lay a foundation, you know, start getting a few things going and then uh, ran out of cash flow. Uh, and there was a building, they've changed, I think it's now one of the college, college, college campuses that's um, 75 and 121 northeast corner. There was a building that was started and it was just sat there like half finished, right? And what he's saying is what's at stake is ridicule. People will mock you. You will become a meme of those who made these big pronouncements. Here's my life. I'm all yours. And then got back into dabbling and distance from Jesus. And there's ridicule for trying to live a double life, trying to do, trying to proclaim and go, I'm all in, and then you can't really muster it. Now, the wise become, I don't have the strength, Jesus. Give me the strength. I'm here to sing, Lord, I need you. You give me everything pertaining to life and godliness. So I do have what it takes, but not enough myself. I have it because you've given me your spirit, your word, your body. Help me to rely on those things you've given me and not my own gumption. So the builder, he says, yeah, I don't want to be the one who half builds, does it halfway because it's just ridicule. But then the other king is like, well, as I look at this, I'm not sure. I better send a delegation. Let's get a, let's get a peace treaty before you come and wipe me out. And so one, again, is, is going, do I have what it takes to finish the job, or will I be ridiculed? And the other says, I might even lose my life. And so as he says this, realize there are costs. Are you willing? Is there some, Jesus, you can have this of me, but not this, or, don't, or if, you get, if you get to messing too much, that's my line. He says, you cannot be my fully devoted disciple. We need to consider that. And one, one thing I think that is, is difficult for us to own his ownership of us, to identify with him no matter the cost, is what it's going to mean for us is reducing our options. What do I, what do I have as like, well, here's my plan B, here's my fallback plan. He says, you've got you to gotta reduce your options. We think, particularly as Americans, we think options equals freedom. Most of us are so anxious we can't sleep right now because we keep so many options in play and don't ever decide. Uh, I love it. This is very mundane. I love it that I've heard of several folks who are like, you know what? I just decided I'm going to buy uh, four black shirts, um, two pair of jeans, and uh, this jacket. What does that do? They don't have to think about a thing in the morning. Hey, God made the colors. I'm not telling you to go be um, the black t-shirted Amish person. Like, I'm just saying there is something to, we think freedom is having options. And yet options are what keep most of us from being splintered all over the place and not devoted. It's impossible to serve God and all the options I'd like to keep. G.K. Chesterton says this, talking straight up as Jesus is. He says that it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, like, ah, eh, I kind of lack something. It's that it's been found difficult and left untried. And Jesus would actually say to that company and to us, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay if you will count the cost and just say, you know what, I'm not willing to pay that cost. Let's call it what it is, is what he would say. He would say, I'd rather that then you speak 
this way and you live this way. Because ultimately, we're dabbling. Ultimately, we're deluded. Ultimately, we're not living into the full, pure saltiness that we are meant to have. Which that brings us to the last one. The third must be, is it must be undistracted. Undistracted. And this is the intersection of God's kingdom and my stuff. If you're thinking, man, there's kind of seems like there's repeat, you're absolutely right. Really, 1426 is kind of the header and everything falls under it. Is he the supreme love relationship of my life? Well, then I'm going to therefore say, well, you need to help me, Lord, look at how you look at my agenda, my plans, how I'm going about my life so that I can be willing, I'm willing to submit to you and endure whatever that costs because you are my more important relationship. And then where that's going to get tested, I think the most for us is where we might find security, significance, or to be groping for satisfaction. And that's our possessions. Verse 33 says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions or Uh, Go back to that one, Eugene Peterson's version in the message. This is really what he's saying, what Jesus is saying. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, what is dearest to you, think about what is dearest to you. Whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying, Everybody go give every yard sale, but don't charge. Get rid of it. Back the U-Hauls up. Now, he might, to clear some clutter or whatever, get rid of some options. He might be calling you to some specific of that. He's not saying don't have anything. What What he is saying is don't have it where the things you have have you, where the possessions that I have possess me. That's what he's saying. Don't allow it to be a stranglehold. And be very careful that they don't choke out the life that comes from a relationship that's devoted to him because they will test our devotion. And so don't allow your possessions to possess or have pull on you. And where we will see that is um, anxiety biblically means to be pulled in two directions. And, and you see this uh, in the, the storehouser in Luke 12. He's like, well, man, I got all these crops and I got more coming. What will I do? And, and so he, there's kind of two responses when you have stuff and then you have more stuff. It's like, okay, I need to either, either clamp down and hoard. Build. He said, I'll build, build bigger storehouses. And God says, you fool. You, you thought that's where life was secured on your own terms, and it's not. But some of us, we will, we will clamp down and we will hoard, just cling to the, our stuff. Or the other is we may not have stuff. You may be sitting in here and going, man, I, I, don't have, I don't have squat in my bank account. And we can still be evidencing the opposite of what Jesus is calling for here. He's saying you must be undistracted. And we can be pulled toward clamoring for stuff. Like, well, once I get this situated financially. Once I get this portfolio together, then my life will be at peace. And then Jesus, I'm all yours. He's saying, whatever you have, who, all that you are and all that you have is a gift from him and is to be given and entrusted to him. And he's making very clear to move us from dabblers to fully devoted. Our relationship with him needs to be unrivaled, the supreme relationship in our lives need to be unquestionable that I identify with him no matter the cost and then undistracted because we are willing and dem- dem- demonstrating that we entrust all of our possessions to him since they are no longer going to be our security and significance. He's clearly laid out these three must-bes. He's saying calculate these costs. Take stock of where you are with me, with how important possessions are, your own plans and agenda, are you aligning and allegiant, uh, giving allegiance to me? Or am I somebody you kind of try to keep on the red phone in case your plans are getting a little shaky and you need my rescue? It says, take stock of those things, all because he wants us to know that you and I were meant to be salty. And that's verses 34 to 35. He says, salt is good, but if it becomes tasteless, eh, 
How can salt become tasteless? Well, there's two possibilities, at least as I read several folk. One is there, um, salt, pure salt is not going to lose its saltiness, if you will. But there are times when you might find a mixture of some things with some salt mixed in, and so therefore it's diluted, and it's not, it's not worth it. Okay? The other possibility is bakers um, would have used, uh, they would have covered the floor of their oven with salt, uh, to give like a catalytic effect um, you know, for the burning of fuel. But after a time, that would kind of wear off. You kind of need to go get some more salt. And what would they do? They'd throw it out. And he's saying, you know, for us, there's different, there's different reasons for salt. Thirst creates thirst. It's a seasoning. It gives you good flavor. Uh, also to preserve. You'd put salt on things to preserve it. Elsewhere in Matthew, we're to, you know, we're to be the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're to live in such a way that's distinctive enough, following him as our love relationship above all others and owning his ownership of us that makes decisions that happen in our orientation and with our possessions, that it would create a thirst in your coworker, that it would cause a pause with um, you students, a student that's with you in your school and is like, you don't, you don't seem to run like everybody else does. You're not weird, but you also don't, fall all over yourself like we do on some of these issues. And he says, now you're being salty. But if I'm dabbling and if I'm pulled in two directions, if I'm trying to have my God and have a little bit of mine over here too, the way I want life to work, he says, we're going to become useless. Useless for building and being part of that battle for his kingdom. And so it's the, the warning here, it's an admonishment that if you're a would-be follower it's impossible to be a dabbling, double-lifed disciple. Assess your relationship with him. Approach following him with thought and follow-through and remain, therefore, useful to God. So what? He who has ears to hear, there's three slides, and, and we're going to sing. Um, the first one, uh, he who has ears to hear. As we're going through this, here's my prayer for you and me. May you have a relationship rivaling Jesus. Sorry, may you who have a relationship, I was like, what is my, may you who have a relationship rivaling Jesus hear his call to repent and return to him as your first love. That is what Jesus himself says to the church at Ephesus. They were squared away doctrinally. You would have gone, man, this church, they, they, don't, they don't put up with false teachers. He said, but I have this one thing. You've left your first love. Don't hear that as a pounding you. Hear it as his call. Because he says, remember our relationship, where, how we got there. I was the big part of that. And return. And then let's, let's move forward in it. Second one. May you who are trying to do the impossible of serving two masters, your own agenda and Jesus's, may he grant you the faith and courage to pray as Jesus did. Not my will, but yours be done. That's an open-handed prayer. That's saying, I don't call the shots to his heavenly father. You call the shot here. Is there any other way? But if not, not my will, but yours be done. That is a unquestionable, I'm yours, identify with you, whatever that means that I must bear, not my will, but yours be done. Is there an area where he's saying, you're not there, you're gripping it. And the last one. You who are gripped with anxiety, gripping your possessions, may you say goodbye to your stuff, distracting and choking you, and entrust all you are and all you have to him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As they come, again, we, I don't want us to hear uh, Jesus. I want us to hear very clearly his call to discipleship. Um, in our day, we prefer the target slogan, which is expect more, pay less. But Jesus is closer to the Marines. We don't take applications, only commitments. Hear that very clearly, but know that he knows you and your struggle. He knows what, where you are tempted to hold back from him. Sorry, I'm going to block you, I guess. And know that he, uh, he says this in love for you and for me. And we only return to him as our first love. We only love him, respond to him in love even now because he first loved us. We're going to sing God really loves us. Would you stand? And then I'll come up with a benediction.
share that message. Some of you um, this morning need to hear God really loves you. We talked about for us taking up our cross, but he's the one who took up the cross, took my place and yours on it. And God says in that way, he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, we encourage you to do that today. And for those who have, the same God who loved us in that way loves you today. He demonstrated it then, but he demonstrates it daily. And so he doesn't want this to be a beat up day. He wants it to be a welcome back to me day. I want to remind you in the passage, he said, sit down and calculate. They, they sat down to calculate the cost. I encourage you, sit down for a moment, 10 minutes, an hour today, and just, where am I, Lord, in these things? And then invite you, and if we, uh, as we do a fast on, from digital stuff on Thursday or Friday, do a little bit of work today to sit down so that you can have a longer sit down and just give him your full attention and say, Lord, I'm yours, but I need to know where I'm not yours and where I'm holding on. I'm gonna read a benediction about God's love. Second Thessalonians will be dismissed. Second Thessalonians 3, 5, and 16. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Have a great week of worship.